Good morning and welcome. What a beautiful weekend and what a beautiful day that we're having. I'd like to again extend my warm wishes to everybody and also welcome a longtime friend, Laura Lee Tillman. And if any of you want to know the power of prayer and the great miracles of the Lord, please make sure you talk to Laura Lee as she will share an amazing journey that she has went through. But welcome this morning. Would you please take a moment and uh, look at the rear of your bulletin on some of the announcements in the life of our church, as well as the overhead behind me. Monday, we are resuming uh, the church downstairs for NA meetings. So what I'd ask everyone, wherever you're at at 7 p.m. on Monday, say a prayer for those that are dealing with that insidious disease as well as their families. So again, I'd ask you to pray wherever you're at for 7 p.m. on Monday. Our next family ministry, and again, family ministry are for children in the grades of five, fifth grade through high school. That next meeting will be next Sunday, not here at the church, but at the McMillan's from six to whatever time. They have many activities planned. There's a bonfire, and it looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, even if you haven't attended before, please contact them. Let them know that you're going to be there. But that'll start at 6 p.m., not here at the church, but at the McMillan's. Our fall cleanup day, we'd ask you if you have two hours to spare on November 21st from about 9 to 11. We'll clean up the outside as well as decorate the inside, both upstairs and downstairs for the holiday season. Uh, again, uh, we would ask for anyone that has special prayers to please put those requests in the prayer room on a 3 by 5 card or contact any member of the church as well as we meet Sunday mornings at 9.15 downstairs. So again, uh, please make sure if there are needs that uh, you get it to the rest of the congregation so we can pray for you. And again, prayer is so powerful, so powerful. Our next baptism service we have scheduled is for November 1st. It's never too late to say, look, it's time for me to get baptized. If you are so desiring, please see one of the elders, but especially Pastor Sam, because our November 1st service, part of that service will be our baptism service. And I believe we have up to maybe nine, nine people that are going to be baptized. And that baptism service is a great encouragement for all of us believers because part of our responsibility is to help them in their journey. And it's also a public declaration of what they have already have decided that Jesus Christ died for them. So again, for those that haven't been baptized, it's never too late, November 1st, we welcome to take that number from nine maybe to whatever. But again, November 1st, that service is uh, scheduled. This year's uh, uh, Christmas Eve uh, candlelight service will be and will begin at 7 p.m. on December 24th. Most of those services uh, take about an hour to maybe about 90 minutes. So again, that'll start at 7 p.m. on December 24th. Our annual congregational meeting will begin after our service on January 31st. And again, for those that don't know, we are congregational in our governance which means the congregation 
are, are the folks that really vote on the budgets as well as the leadership changes. It is our responsibility of the current leadership to get all those plans, budgets uh, to you, and our plan is to get it to you by December 21st, so you have more than a month to review that and to seek out and to ask whatever questions you may have. But again, uh, we'd ask you to continue to pray uh, for the leadership team as they continue to work through their budgets and the changes in the leadership. Our church elders as well as the leadership also want to take the moment to thank all the teachers and all the volunteers this year. You know, we can't do all these things without all the help. And even though we're small in numbers, there are many, many people that give their time over and over again. And we just want to extend our great thanks to each one of you for whatever role of volunteering or, or helping out. So again, the leadership says thank you very much. Uh, also, would you please stand uh, for our call to worship? And as we stand, I'd also like to recognize that it's Tom Lacey's birthday today. <laughs> That's not why I came up. Sorry. Hi, Mom. Okay. Our call to worship this morning is Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Of a thousand burning suns blazing in the heavens, there is only one, He is our God. Who commands the nations, building up and tearing down, silencing His rivals, there is only one, He is our God.
water you turned into wine Open the eyes of the blind There's no one like you None like you Into the darkness you shine Out of the ashes we rise There's no one like you God is stronger, God you are higher than any other, our God is healer, awesome in power, our God, our God. Into the darkness you shine. Out of the ashes we rise, there's no one like you, none like you. Our God is greater, our God is stronger, God you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power, our God. Our God is greater, our God is stronger, God you are higher than any other, our God is healer, awesome in power, our God, our God. And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? Our God is greater, our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome power. Our God, our God. Our God is greater, our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome power. Our God. Sing that again. Our God is greater, our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power. Our God, our God. Amen.
Dick, I want you to know you were glad to see you this morning too, buddy. <laughs> um, prayer updates this week. Uh, please be in prayer for Mike and Peggy Lynn as they'll be uh, starting their return trip. We praise God for the news that uh, the adoption is complete and they are now waiting for their son to be discharged from the hospital. So yes, we definitely praise God for that. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for uh, this beautiful morning, Lord, for the changing of the seasons and for just the reminder that you are at work and that your universe is ordered and you are in control. Uh, Lord, we praise you today for your goodness and your kindness in our lives. Lord, we thank you that uh, Laura Lee and Dick could be here this morning and Lord, for the uh, uh, for the good health that you have blessed Laura Lee with of late, Lord, we recognize that uh, uh, that is uh, the work of your hand, and we praise you for it. And Lord, we continue to pray for Dick this morning as well, uh, Lord, for uh, the alleviation of the headaches and the other uh, pain that he is dealing with. And so, Lord, we just uh, thank you that we can come to you knowing that you are the one who hears and answers prayer according to your good purposes, so it is with great uh, joy that we praise you for uh, Laura Lee's breakthrough, and we entrust Dick into your hands, and, and so we continue, Lord, to, uh, to make that a, a focus of prayer and praise this morning. Uh, Lord, we also rejoice this morning with the Rohrer family. Lord, we thank you for the safe arrival of uh, their son, uh, Caleb, and we pray, Lord, that uh, uh, you would allow him to be uh, discharged as soon as it is safe to do so, uh, that they would be able to begin the trek home. Uh, Lord, it has been uh, a, a rough road for Mike and Peggy Lynn on this adoption journey. Uh, but Lord, I know the first time uh, that they held little Caleb, they knew, uh, Lord, that it was all a part of your plan. And so, Lord, thank you for the way that you have shown them your faithfulness, Lord. Uh, we pray for them for wisdom and safety as they drive home. Uh, Lord, we pray for them uh, for wisdom as parents. And, Lord, we pray uh, for Asher, Aiden, and Coralyn this morning as well, Lord, as they uh, rejoice uh, having a, a new baby brother. Uh, Lord, that you would uh, just use them to be a blessing in this little boy's life as he grows up in this family. Uh, Lord, as we uh, continue our, our prayer time this morning, Lord, we do uh, pray for those among us and also, Lord, those who are not a part of the church that, that are struggling this morning uh, and uh, need your guidance and your help. Uh, Lord, for those of us that are part of New Hope, I, I pray that, Lord, that you would just keep us mindful of the many opportunities that you give us each and every week to uh, encourage other believers that are struggling, uh, Lord, to share the gospel with those who do not know you, uh, and other ways that you call us to bring honor and glory to your name. Would you help us, Lord, to, to be mindful of that great privilege that you give uh, to all of your followers? Uh, Lord, I pray for us as a body this morning as we worship together. Uh, Lord, we are in uh, an amazing gospel uh, for our study, and I pray Lord, that uh, as uh, your word is proclaimed and as your people listen and, and consider uh, the glorious truths within, Lord, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and minds. Lord, that you would transform us and conform us, 
uh, further into the image of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Uh, Lord, that you would set us free from the sin that so easily entangles us and give us the strength and the endurance that we need to, to run the race that you set before us with great joy. Lord, I pray for us as a church and individuals, Lord, that we would be known for that joy in you. Uh, Lord, it, it's often when our joy is at the lowest, uh, uh, a strong indicator that we've taken our eyes off of you and, and what matters most. And so, would you make us be uh, quick to repent, Lord, when we fail in that way? May we be ever turning to you in faith, seeking uh, the wisdom and the strength that we need to follow you faithfully and to bring glory to your name. Uh, Lord, I, I echo Jean's uh, gratitude for our teachers and those who volunteer. And uh, Lord, this morning we take time to just pray a, a special prayer over our children who are about to be dismissed and those who are teaching and, and helping in the classrooms. Uh, Lord, I pray that today you would grant each class a holy moment uh, Lord, where you reveal yourself uh, uh, to both the teachers and, and the students alike from your word and from the lessons that are taught. And, and Lord, that the truths uh, that are, are proclaimed there, Lord, would take root in, in fertile hearts. Uh, Lord, that, that, that in each child's life there would spring up uh, righteousness and joy and peace and faith in you. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the privilege that is ours to, to come and sing your praises and to see one another's smiling faces. Lord, we pray for our country today, one that is so divided over so many temporary uh, issues. And Lord, some very eternal, some, uh, some issues that, that, that are very important as well. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom to see, uh, Lord, the, the, the disagreements and the discussions to engage in and also, Lord, the ones to, to, to set aside Help us, Lord, to be men and women who are more uh, concerned about the things that honor you than we are our own comfort and our pet ideals. Uh, Lord, I pray that our values would be the values of Scripture. Lord, I pray that our boldness would not be born out of anger and frustration, but Lord, our boldness would be born out of a growing walk with you and a, and a burden for those that do not yet know you. Help us, Lord, to, to grow in faithfulness in this way, we pray. We love you, Lord. Thank you for saving us, Lord Jesus. Thank you for bearing the wrath that our sins deserved. Thank you, Lord, that, that all who turn to you in faith uh, have the assurance that we are righteous now in the sight of God. That we, we have the promise of eternal life. We have the presence of your spirit within us. And we have an eternity uh, that will be filled with, with, with joy and gladness in you. Lord, I, I pray that these truths, Lord, would, 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 would change the way we live as your people. Make it so, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Atoning sacrifice. 
morning in our study of the Gospel of John, we are in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And my note takers came in this morning and looked at their bulletin and wondered what on earth is going on. Where are our blanks to fill in? Well, we're going to try things a little bit differently for a while, um, and that's to give you blank space uh, so you can take notes uh, in the areas uh, where you see fit and as the Lord leads, things that may stick out to you. I still will be uh, sharing main points and emphasizing those points throughout the sermon so you can write those down, but uh, as we have seen uh, early on that... um, uh, you can uh, leave that dark for a moment, um, Cole. Also, you notice behind us that we do have slides this morning. We're trying things a little bit differently. Um, just a few uh, to help us signpost, especially today, given we're going to cover a lot of background information and, and context uh, for uh, the section of the book of the Gospel of John that we are moving into. As we learned uh, early on when we began this study, uh, John is very strategic in how he writes, and so uh, we, we want to make sure that we are following along with his original intent and his flow of thought as we study each section of the Gospel of John. Uh, so again, today we are in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to read those to you now, then I will pray and we will dive right in. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, "Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now." This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana. In Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let us pray. Help us, Lord, to hear and comprehend the powerful truths that are set before us in your word this day. Lord, I do pray that you would strengthen the faith of every believer in this room. And Lord, I pray that you would bring conviction and repentance to any unbelievers who are present here today. Lord, the gospel is clear in your word that the only way to be restored to God is through faith in Jesus our Lord, the one who died in our place. So open eyes and hearts to this truth, I pray. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Now, John chapter 2 marks a transition in the Gospel of John. In chapter 1, John set the stage by reminding us that the Son of God is the eternal creator, the light and the life, and the one who was promised in the Old Testament to redeem the people of God. In the second half of chapter 1, John builds our anticipation by sharing what others had testified concerning Jesus. John the Baptist said he's the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. Andrew and John called him Rabbi. Andrew called him the Messiah, the Christ, the Chosen One of God. Philip called him him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. In other words, the guy the Old Testament is all about. Nathaniel called him the son of God and the king of Israel. And this is just to name a few. This second section of the Gospel of John runs all the way through chapter 11 and it focuses on Jesus' public ministry. Some refer to these chapters as the book of Christ's signs. Because there are seven signs recorded here which serve as proof that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. And that we may see and believe. Remember, that's the the purpose of the Gospel of John. Remember John 20 verses 30 and 31 where John sets forth why he's written this lengthy Gospel? Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. So as we encounter this gospel week after week, that call to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who gave his life to redeem us and and give us eternal life in his name, is going to confront unbelievers and challenge believers to trust him even more. Every week, prepare yourselves, brothers and sisters. You can bring the first slide up now, Cole. The, the, seven, excuse me, the seven signs in chapter 2 through 11 are as follows. And, and just but before I highlight those, uh, when John the Apostle uses that word signs, he, he's not just talking about miracles. He's certainly including miracles in that. But what John, when he uses the word sign, he is, he is referencing a, a reality, whether it be the miracle of, of turning the water into wine or, or, or when we get back in a couple of weeks into the Gospel of John, we're going to see um, Jesus cleansing the temple. That's also a sign. But, but he's, a sign is something that take pla- takes place that points to a greater reality. That's what John means by the word signs. So so the seven signs in chapters 2 through 11 are as follows. First of all, as we see today, 
Jesus turns water into wine. The second sign will be uh, in the next section. Jesus cleanses the temple. Third, Jesus heals the nobleman's son in chapter 4. In chapter 5, Jesus heals the paralytic. In chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. In chapter 9, Jesus heals the man born blind. And then in chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. So we're in this section, these signs. And so as we read these signs, I want you to continually keep John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 in your mind. Why did John choose these signs? Well, we'll look at the details as we get to each one. But ultimately, these have been written so that you may believe. And that in believing, you may have life in his name. Pretty clear, right? We have no excuse week after week, sign after sign, miracle after miracle, whatever Jesus is doing, but but to have our faith and our confidence in Christ strengthened. We should walk out of the gospel of John, brothers and sisters, with, with, with with a confidence level in our Savior and Lord greater than it's ever been in our Christian lives. And that is not me overstating things at all. In fact, that's my my prayer for us today, even as we consider this sign that some consider strange, that that you will walk out with a greater faith in Christ. Non-believer, that this will be the day that you stop loving your sin and, and you love the one who gave his life to redeem you. I love the Gospel of John, if you can't tell. I do. I do. The the, the story of the the man born blind and his healing and his response with the religious leaders, one of my favorites in all the Bible. Isn't that right? Megan and Jack and Ben found that out this week at Pastor's Day at their church. That was one of the questions that they asked. I love this because John breaks his writing down pretty systematically. I love it because Jesus is exalted in almost every page, every account that takes place. In fact, this section, this book of signs that we're talking about in chapters uh, 2 through 11 can can be broken down even further as we look at chapters 2 through 4. Chapters 2 through 4 could be summarized under the heading that the old has gone and the new has come. And right on cue, there it is. In our story today, we see that the old traditions of purification have been replaced in Christ with with the new wine of the kingdom of God. Doesn't that whet your appetite? Next, our next section of the gospel, the old temple is, is replaced by the living Lord. In chapter 3, with Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, we see the, the new birth and the new life that, that is available in Christ. As people experience the, the Holy Spirit in a new way. The old is gone, the new has come. And then finally, with uh, in um, Excuse me. In, in chapter 6, we see that 
The old worship in Jerusalem and Gerizim is replaced by worship in spirit and truth. Excuse me, it's chapter 4. So again, John doesn't just give us a bunch of signs. He further even breaks that down to make the case why Jesus is better. There's not going to be another Messiah. There's not going to be another sacrifice for sins. It's Christ. And John wants his readers to know. He does not want us to be confused at all concerning who this Jesus is. Brothers and sisters, can, can you see the feast that is set before us in the Word of God? This morning, as we consider the first of the signs which reveals that the testimonies of John the Baptist, Andrew, John, Nathaniel, Philip, Moses, the prophets, and God himself concerning Jesus' identity as the Messiah sent to redeem the people of God, as we consider this sign, remember that the most important reality in your life is that you recognize that Jesus is who the Bible reveals that he is. And that he is the only way of salvation. Now, as we examine John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we're going to do so under three headings. First of all, we're going to consider the wedding. Secondly, a changed relationship. And then finally, we're going to, to, to close by looking at the miracle itself. And again, as I prayed earlier, may... God's Spirit move mightily among us this day. Let, let's look first at verses 1 and 2, the wedding. John writes, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, just to warn you up front, there's going to be a lot of cultural and background information. All of it is vital. For us to appreciate the miracle itself. Now, its location. First of all, Cana of Galilee is a, is a very small village that's about nine miles northeast of Nazareth. Where Jesus and Mary were, were living at the time. Nazareth itself what was, was a town of about 500 people at its high point. We don't know exactly how many people lived there at the time of Christ, but definitely no more than that. Small town. And Cana wasn't even a town. It was a, a village. It was much smaller. It probably consisted of a, of a few dozen people. They probably counted in dozens rather than hundreds in that case. We also need to remember that during that time, people were much less mobile than they are today. I was born and raised in a small city in North Carolina. I went to college and seminary in South Carolina. And praise God, eventually ended up here in Pennsylvania. That's a lot of miles, right? Angela was born in South Carolina and lived in Texas. Germany, New Mexico, New Hampshire, New Jersey, Tennessee, North Carolina, and eventually Pennsylvania. That's way more impressive than mine, right? 
But we need to remember that was unheard of in ancient Israel. Remember, they traveled primarily on foot or with the help of horses or donkeys. Some people lived their entire lives and, and, and may not have traveled out of a 20-mile radius. Now, I grew up in a, in a town of about 16,000, and I lived there until I was 21. And we knew what seemed like the majority of the people there. So you can imagine in a town of, of 500 or, or, or dozens that there would be a lot of close connections, right? Their, their social circles would have consisted of family, of neighbors, and, and those who lived in neighboring cities or villages. And, and all of this is to make the point that the wedding was probably between people that Jesus knew personally. Mary, we see his mother, is also present, as were his disciples. And those who were gathered to celebrate, on the whole, would have been very acquainted with each other. Many of whom being relatives. So that location is important because it puts us in a region that tells us that, okay, this gathering was probably a very large gathering, but it was a gathering of people who knew one another. So then let's consider the significance of the wedding. Now, weddings in ancient Israel were a huge affair. Now, down south where I'm from, weddings usually take a couple of hours for those who attend. You're looking at a, at a 45 minute to an hour service if you've got a long-winded officiant. Followed by... A reception that, that basically consists of finger foods, no meal. So you're out of there inside of two hours. We'd all go to that kind of wedding, right? Now up here in the Northeast, it's, it's usually a bit longer, is it not? Service times may vary, but, but the wedding is usually followed by what? A meal. And if you're invited to the right wedding, it's a big meal. Not just a meal, but also other activities which lead to the guests sticking around for a few hours. So you move from the, from, the, from the couple of hours to down south to probably three or four up in the northeast. And if your background is Italian, it might be even longer than that. But, but in ancient Israel, a wedding could last up to a week. That's right, an entire week, unlike, and unlike in America where the parents of, of the groom or the bride tend to pick up the expenses, in ancient Israel, the groom himself had to foot the bill. It was part of the proof that he could support his wife. So here, come to this lavish wedding that I'm throwing here, and I want to show that I'm going to be a good husband and a good provider because I'm going to meet all of your needs while you're here can see where I'm going, right? They, they ran out of something that was very important at a wedding. To run out of food or, or drink or really any other necessity over the, in course, over the course of the wedding would have been humiliating. Remember, Israel was an honor-shame culture, and if you were on the shame side of things, it was heaped on 
And so this groom running out of wine would have been the laughingstock of his small village. You can see it, right? You're, you're, you're walking down the dusty streets of the village and, and here you see him coming and, and you cross to the other side because that's that guy who ran out of wine at his wedding. How's he even taking care of his wife? Some, some, some scholars believe that, that, that he would have been open to a lawsuit from his wife's, the bride's relatives for failing to provide in the wedding. That's, that's a big deal. All right, it's not like running out of punch at the wedding down south. So here we are at the wedding, one of the most treasured celebrations in ancient Israel, and they've run out of wine. Things are looking rough for the groom. Maybe he's already looking for a place to hide. But before we move on, I, I should point out, brothers and sisters, that wine in ancient Israel was just that. Actual wine made from fermented grape juice. It had alcohol in it. But it does differ from our wine today in that it was much more diluted. Think about it. That was how they purified the water that they would drink. So it would, it would be about a, a tenth to a, a third more diluted than its fermented strength. So you would have to, if you were going to try to get inebriated from, from drinking wine, you would have to drink a lot. But it was wine. I've heard a lot of people devalue what takes place in this passage that somehow Jesus would not create an alcoholic beverage. Well, he does, and, and there's a reason he does. We'll get to that a little bit later. The, the wine had to be diluted because it was their primary source of hydration. It was wine, and you could drink too much, but you had to try. It was wine, and they had run out of it. At the wedding, which led to a revealing of a change relationship. Verses 3 through 5. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, honestly, at first glance, to me at least, this is a rather confusing exchange between Mary and Jesus. Why does Mary care that they've run out of wine? Was she in charge of hospitality? Is the groom a relative? But we don't know, but she clearly cares about the reputation of the groom in this situation. Some have indicated that she goes to Jesus expecting a miracle. But why? why? Why make that assumption? There's, there's nothing in the Bible that indicates that Jesus had performed miracles before this one. The, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Jesus performed miracles as a child, but nowhere in the Bible is this mentioned. In fact, all the evidence points to the contrary, does it not? not? Here we are, wedding at Cana, Jesus' first miracle. I believe Mary approached Jesus for a much different reason. 
Now, most scholars believe that at this point, you remember Jesus is probably 31-ish. Most scholars believe that, that Joseph, Mary's husband, was already dead at this point in Jesus' life. He's not mentioned anywhere. He's not mentioned at the crucifixion where, where, where Jesus passes off Mary to John to be the caregiver in her life. As he hangs on the cross. This is why he wouldn't have done that if Joseph was still alive. If Joseph was dead, then Jesus, the firstborn son, would have been the one caring for her. He would have been the problem solver in her life. And John MacArthur points out that, that, that it would make perfect sense to turn to Jesus for help in this seemingly impossible situation. He was perfect, after all. He, he, he probably never had a bad idea in his life. She, she's used to turning to Jesus when there's a problem. But, but even more puzzling than that is Jesus' response to Mary in verse 4. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, in English, it sounds a little disrespectful, doesn't it? Boys... Don't talk to your mothers this way. You might wake up in the middle of next week. But no, the, the, the Greek word translated woman is similar to the southern phrase ma'am. It's a sign of respect, but it is not an intimate word. In fact, that's the same word that Jesus uses on the cross when he says to John, Behold your mother. Our woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. That woman, that, that addressing Mary from the cross, woman. Why, why doesn't Jesus say, Mom, Mom, what's this got to do with me? Well, I think the context is clear that, that this is marking a turning point in Jesus and Mary's relationship. She may be his mother, but he is her God. And she would require the same sacrifice to be redeemed as every other person. Remember, we're at the beginning of his ministry. And, and from the beginning of his ministry onward, Jesus is focused on his father's business rather than his mother's. And we see this in the phrase, my hour has not yet come. This is another one of those key phrases in the Gospel of John. Jesus' hour is ultimately all that is fulfilled in his crucifixion and resurrection. We're building towards that in his Gospel. In chapters 2 through 11, this book of signs, Jesus several times makes the statement, The hour is coming. An hour is coming. Referring to what his sacrifice accomplishes for his people. John 4, 23. The hour is coming when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. John 5, 28. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, the Son of Man's voice, and come out. In John 7 and 8, in both cases, the religious leaders are seeking to arrest Jesus. But John writes... But his hour had not come. But then in chapter 12, in the upper room, it all changes. 
John 12, 23. And Jesus answered them, his disciples, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So here in, in, in 2 through 11, we just focus on, on Jesus' public ministry. It's not time, it's not time, it's not time. Here he is the night that he was betrayed and arrested. My hour has come. So we see that Jesus' focus, it has to shift fully to fulfilling the Father's will in his ministry. The relationship with Mary must take a lesser role. And, and we see this in how Jesus speaks to her. My hour has not come. Woman, what, what, what does this have to do with me? But Mary, however, still trusts her son. And she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. So let's consider the miracle, verses 6 through 11. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is... The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now, the miracle as we read it is pretty straightforward, is it not? Jesus tells the servants to fill the purification jars to the brim, dip the water out, and take it to the master of the feast. And somewhere along the way, it is transformed into wine, but not just wine, the finest of wines. Now, I had a great conversation this week with Angela and Isaac about this. Have, have you ever wondered why this is the first miracle? A little village in Cana, and he does a, a, a miracle that is only witnessed by his disciples and the servants who were present. Now, we know, because we've all studied the life of Jesus to some level or another, that Jesus did some amazing things. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He calmed the storm. He walked on water. And by comparison, this miracle, only witnessed by the disciples and the servants, seems almost insignificant. But nothing could be further from the truth, brothers and sisters. Several factors make this the ideal setting for the first miracle of Jesus' ministry. Why? First of all, it was at a wedding. And throughout the New Testament, the, the relationship between Jesus and the church is described as what? As a marriage. It's the, it's the primary illustration he uses. At the coming of Jesus' kingdom... When we all celebrate together, we, we will do so at a feast that is called what? The marriage supper of the Lamb. 
So that this first miracle happened at a wedding is incredibly significant. Remember, the new things have come. Jesus is, is, is ushering in a, a, a new relationship between God and man as he will be our mediator. So the location, or excuse me, the, the fact that it was a wedding matters. Secondly, let's consider wine. I've already referred to the potency or the lack of potency of, of ancient wine, but there's another way that it plays a role here. In addition to the commands against drunkenness in the Old Testament, wine also takes on positive connotations. It is often used symbolically to reflect the joy and the abundance of the coming kingdom of God. Isaiah chapter 25 verses 6 through 8. Isaiah says, I prophesize, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. They're all going to see him as he is. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It sounds a lot like Revelation 21, does it not? So there it is, wine as, as a symbol of, 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 the, of the joy and abundance of this new heaven and earth, that, that will, or the new, uh, the new kingdom that will exist on earth. Next up, look at Amos chapter 9, verses 13 through 15. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seeds. Okay, now that's a really fancy way of saying is that they're going to have so many crops that they're not going to be able to handle it all, is what Amos is saying there. Now get this. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. So is wine significant? You betcha. Absolutely. Jesus is giving them a foretaste, pun intended, of what it's going to be like when his kingdom comes completely. In creating wine, the creator of the universe, John chapter 1 verse 3, is giving the wedding guests a foretaste of his coming kingdom. And that's really what a major aspect of his ministry was like. 
It wasn't about that. Why, why do you think he healed so many? It was to, 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 to serve as a, as a sign of, of the fact that what, everything that he taught and said was, was as the Messiah. But it's also a, a taste of what it's going to be like when the, when the Son of God is, is among his people forevermore. So wine is significant. Third, the, the purification jars. Now these were jars that were used to hold water that the guest would use to, to ceremonially cleanse themselves. Six jars, each holding 20 to 30 gallons of water. We, we know that at this point the Jews were by and large far from God. Their religious practices were, were simply things that they went through because they knew they ought to do them. But their, their hearts were far from the Lord on the most part. The, the ceremonial laws of washing had become fuel that fed the legalistic tendencies of the religious leaders rather than expressions of sincere worship before God. But Jesus takes that which represents their dead faith, the, 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 water the jars that held the, water the purified water, and, but he, and he filled it with that which represented joy in the kingdom of God, wine. A.W. Pink writes, The jars used were supposed to hold water for religious purification purposes. The miracle points to Jesus as the source of true joy. Contrasted with the empty, joyless religious practices of the Jews of that time. A lot more to this miracle than we first thought, right? Let's consider, fourth, the nature of the wine. It was so fine, so good, such quality, that the master of the feast rebukes the groom for saving it for last. That's what he's doing in verse 10. He says everyone serves the good wine first. Why? Because that's when they can taste it and appreciate it. And then the more they drink, the, the more their taste buds become dull. So, so, so groom, why would you bring out the good stuff now? They can't appreciate it. But it's a picture of everything that Jesus did, is it not? Jesus isn't going to create poor wine, especially wine that, that represents the kingdom of God. What, what do we see in Isaiah? It's rich. It's, a, it's choice. It's fine wine. It's what we would expect from the Son of God. And then finally, the audience. Only the servants and the disciples actually were aware that Jesus did Anything And verse 11 tells us why. It says, This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. That next sentence. And his disciples believed in him. The wedding party benefited from the miracle, but they failed to witness it. Jesus did it semi-privately for the benefit of his disciples. There's going to be plenty of public ministry down the road. Just read the rest of chapter 2. Jesus jumps on the scene publicly in a way that, that few people nowadays would advise. He cleansed the temple. He came in and he drove out the money changers with a whip, turning over tables. That's, that's pretty 
heavy duty, right? That's a serious beginning to the ministry, but that does not mean that this is insignificant. He's building the faith of his disciples. Why? Because there's a rough road ahead for them. But isn't that how the Lord works? He deals with us where we are, and he gives us what we need in order to follow him faithfully. Now, we know that they will fail and struggle and stumble just like we all do. But at this moment, he is preparing them for the ministry that lie ahead. Brothers and sisters, these things have been written that you may believe. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe in the, in the Son of God who turned water into wine? Not as just some random thing to do or even as a, as, a, as a response primarily to the request of His mother. But to give a small and at the time seemingly unknown foretaste of, of what the kingdom of God is going to be like so that on this day, over 2,000 years later, we could stand here and we could gaze in John chapter 2 and we could see God in His glory. We could see as we look at the Bible that, that it's not just disjointed books and tales and, and myths that are all strung together in, in one book, but that it ties together and throughout the Old Testament we see the hand of God at work. So that when the New Testament comes along in, in the ministry of Christ, we can have our faith reassured and reaffirmed and, and built up as we see even, even in this small, small, small in the sense of witnesses, miracle, still a miracle, none of us could do it. Even in that, we, we see how this is, is the fulfillment of, of what God had said, even in the Old Testament. How's your faith today, brothers and sisters? Christian, you need to know. You need to know that there is nothing insignificant in this word. You need to know that it is vital that, that each day you build up your life and your faith on, on what is revealed here. Read it, and if you're confused, dig a little deeper. There are plenty of resources out there to, to, to help peel back some of these cultural things to, 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 to broaden our understanding of the Word of God. And if that doesn't work, call me, email me, I'll help. But you need to know that, that this truly is a gold mine, it is a, a feast. I don't say that to, to try to wax eloquent. You guys know that ain't me. I say it because it's the gospel truth. Throughout this week, time and again, I, I found myself as I studied this passage just praising God for how in His wisdom He preserved His word for His people. I found myself longing for that day when I could drink the wine of the kingdom of God I'm going to tell you, I hate wine. I think that's the nastiest stuff in the world, but somehow I know, I know that that's going to be different. That's going to be different, and it's going to be wonderful, not just because it is sweet to the palate, but it's going to be wonderful because we're going to be consuming it with our Savior. 
We're going to be consuming it with the creator of the universe. To the non-believers among us, how can you resist this glorious future? How can you resist this glorious Savior who, who has done all that could be done, all that needed to be done in order to reconcile you to God, to remove the wrath that you deserve? And by wrath, I mean judgment, punishment, hell. How can you resist? Look to the Savior and be saved. Let us pray. And this is just one, one sign, one miracle of many more to come. And I pray, Lord, for each one of us that as we read and study and reflect on who you are and what you have done, oh Lord, that you would indeed Build our faith in you. Help us to see the greater reality that, that each one of your signs point to. Help us to long for the day when we look on you with our eyes and we are transformed into your glorious kingdom. Do this work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. in my Redeemer whose priceless blood has ransomed me mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death my Savior before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness, the Lamb who is my righteousness. I will glory in my Redeemer, my life He bought, my love He owns. I have no
my eyes to the hills from where does my help come my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth he will not let your foot be moved he who keeps you will not slumber behold he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep the Lord is your keeper the Lord is your shade on your right hand the sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. From this time forth and forevermore. Amen. We are dismissed.